Today I am in Tel Aviv at the Jaffa Hotel specifically speaking with Elon Levy. Many people will recognize Elon because he has been the Israeli government spokesman speaking on media across Britain, across the world, representing the Israeli government. He began serving at the start of the 2023 Israel-Hamas war. He served previously as international media advisor to President Isaac Herzog after a career as a television news anchor at I-24 News. Elon, thank you for coming to speak with me today. It's good to speak with you and in such a beautiful historic venue that I hope will inspire an interesting and in-depth conversation here. Um, it's stunning. Uh, so maybe you can tell me a little bit about your role. It seems to me that there's a clear Israeli effort on media and, and strategy um, for global media. What, what is that strategy? What can you tell me about it? October 7th was a moment that changed everything. And nothing is ever going to be the same in our country after the bloodiest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. It was a moment that ripped the veil off and the mask off a lot of people around the world, unfortunately, who began celebrating those atrocities and then denying them. And in Israel, was a resounding and stunning slap in the face. 1,200 people murdered in the most brutal way imaginable, 253 hostages abducted into the Gaza Strip, and our whole country found itself immediately on total war footing in order to do what we need to destroy Hamas and bring back the hostages. Now, when this war started, I was not a government spokesman. I was a private citizen. I am here as part of the mass mobilization of civil society to support the efforts that are needed uh, because what we are trying to do now is to remind the world, I think, of three essential things. First of all, October 7th was, as the president of the European Parliament said, a day that will live forever in global infamy. This was no mere terror attack. This was a barbaric massacre. We will continue reminding the world of what happened on October 7th, the sexual atrocities, the sadism with which Hamas perpetrated uh, that massacre. The second is to keep talking about the hostages. We still have 136 hostages trapped in the Hamas terror dungeons. We know they are being starved, tortured, raped. We fear for their well-being. Every minute they are there as a threat to their lives. We're shocked sometimes people expect us to abandon them in the Hamas terror dungeons. And we keep talking about the hostages to remind them why we are fighting to rescue our children who are trapped there. And the third is to continue talking about the inhumanity of Hamas, not only against us, but against the Palestinian people as well. This is a terror organization that has governed the Gaza Strip for the last 16 years, had a golden opportunity to build something really marvelous on the Mediterranean there, and instead subordinated the whole strip towards its goal of jihad and annihilation and slaughter and built a whole underground city of tunnels using the civilians above ground to try to protect their military assets underneath ground, underground. And the point we are making is that the day after Hamas, the day after the Palestinian people in Gaza are free of this barbaric terror organization that has subordinated them to its war machine, there will be new opportunities, new opportunities to turn a new leaf and have a future of peace and prosperity if the correct decisions are made to put this chapter behind us and for the Palestinians to have a sharp course correction towards understanding the need to live next to Israel 
instead of pursuing violent struggle against it. I'm looking forward to speaking specifically about that and the hostages and strategy there. I want to just talk a little bit more about the media strategy. Does Israel care what the world thinks about what's going on here? On the one hand, we are determined to continue with the goals of this war until the end. We simply cannot afford to leave Hamas standing when it tells us that it wants to perpetrate these atrocities again and again, and with over 100 hostages trapped in the terror dungeons. So even if we are criticized and condemned by the world, we understand what we have to do for our survival. This is a war for our survival. But on the other hand, we want to end this war with our friendships and alliances intact and strengthened because we want our friends and allies around the world to understand why we are fighting and to understand that we are doing exactly what they would do if, God forbid, they were subjected to such a barbaric assault or exactly what they would like to think they would be capable of doing in order to bring their children home to safety and bring their tormentors to justice. So it is important for us because we want to end this war with our international position strengthened and with our heads held high and the world respecting us. And that's why it is so critical that we secure diplomatic support as we continue with this war. And we still have it three months on, which is perhaps the extraordinary thing about this war compared to previous conflicts between Israel and Hamas. We're recording this podcast just a day after the European Parliament voted on an extraordinary resolution that called for a permanent ceasefire only after... Hamas is dismantled and the hostages are returned. The European Parliament voted on a resolution essentially calling for total Israeli victory, complete alignment with Israel's goals in this war, because they understood back on October 7th that Hamas exists for the sake of waging war, therefore for the sake of peace it must go. It says it will never continue attacking us, and therefore if you want peace, if you want a future of prosperity between the peoples living in this land, Hamas has to go, and therefore the the media battle is absolutely critical in securing the diplomatic support that we still maintain, retaining our respect among the family of nations, and making sure that people understand, despite all the awfulness of this war, why we are doing what we have to do, and not to believe, not to believe the lies that are being systematically put out by those who want this war to end with Hamas on its feet, have totally dehumanized Jews and Israelis to the point that people are tearing down posters of little kidnapped children, not buy into that very slick propaganda machine that is trying to turn Israel somehow into a global pariah simply for fighting to make sure that our children can never be abducted, massacred, raped again. So you've been on the front line with the media, and one obvious example of media misinformation was the Al-Ali Hospital. Uh, This was not long after October 7th, I think October 18th. The story was that it was targeted by Israel. It, It transpired that, in fact, it was a misfiring rocket from Gaza. Now, This actually turned out to be pretty significant. Not only that it was a misfired rocket from inside Gaza, when the sun came up in the morning, the hospital was still standing. It had caused damage in the car park. King Abdullah of Jordan then cancelled peace talks with Biden, the leaders of Egypt, um, because of that misinformation, if I can use the word misinformation. So you're probably in a better position than anyone to tell me 
what other misinformation there? What have you been? You've been grilled by all sorts of media. What are the lies about this war that you've been facing? The Al-Ahli Hospital incident was extraordinary because Hamas put out a press release saying that Israel had launched an airstrike on a hospital and killed 800 people. The sun came up in the morning. It was an Islamic Jihad rocket that misfired. It landed in the car park and definitely nowhere near that number of people were killed. By the way, this links into as well when people take the overall casualty number presented by Hamas and we think there is no reason to take at face value a casualty number presented by a proscribed terrorist organization. They then attribute all those casualties to Israel, despite knowing that over 2,000 rockets have landed, misfired from inside the Gaza Strip, landed inside, killed Palestinians, including everyone at the Al-Ahli Hospital. And that remains the sole and square responsibility of Hamas and the other terror organizations operating there. Islamic Jihad, specifically that one. It was Islamic Jihad, absolutely. The the death toll, according to Associated Press, in Gaza is 24,000. Do you accept that number? We do not think there is any reason to accept at face value the numbers presented by Hamas. Is that a Hamas number? Yes, that is the number that is presented by the Gaza Health Ministry is Hamas. Uh, Hamas controls the health ministry in Gaza. This is the number that is coming from uh, a terror organization. Now, whatever the number is, obviously every civilian death is a tragedy. and, And we're pained to see it because... Civilian deaths are a tragic feature of every war, and they're a tragic feature of this war that Hamas launched, that we didn't want, we didn't start, we didn't even expect this war. Hamas launched this war, and it has blood on its hands. But you know, the interesting point is that even if we accept that figure, the IDF believes that it has killed at least 9,000 Hamas terrorists. Now, if that's the case, you're talking about a civilian to casualty ratio of one to one and a half. That is unheard of, unheard of in the history of modern warfare and counterterrorism battles. If you compare it to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to the battle against ISIS, the ratio against civilians, how many civilians were killed, was always much, much higher. And this speaks to the incredible efforts that the IDF has been making to try to pinpoint Hamas terrorists with precision and avoid harm to civilians, even though that's not the image that is presented in the international media. And one of the difficult things we have to deal with is somehow the impression that Israel is either being indiscriminate or indifferent to the question of civilians or worse, and this is the outrageous blood libel perpetrated by South Africa, is actively trying to target them because South Africa is accusing us. I don't even want to use that that horrific word in order not to lend it any credence. We are fighting a war to destroy the Hamas monsters. This isn't a war against civilians in Gaza. And one of the biggest misperceptions that we have to deal with is the impression among the international media that we're either indifferent to civilians in Gaza or actively want to hurt them. There must be some concept of casualty numbers in Gaza, according to the Israeli government. Do you have any figure that you have in mind? Of- I'm not familiar with a specific, uh, not familiar with a specific number, but the numbers you quote are the ones coming out of uh, Hamas. Can I ask about October 7th? I understand, and you've said this before, that there'll be a time to investigate fully what happened on October 7th. There were 28 breaches along the Gaza border. <clears throat> Thousands of Hamas crossed the border. There was a second wave of looters that came and around 1,200 Israelis slaughtered. I've got to ask you, how did this happen? 
that's the question that everyone in the country is asking themselves. How on earth did this happen? Because we thought Hamas was deterred. We said, yes, we know that it is a brutal, barbaric terror organization that would kill all of us if given half the chance, but it doesn't have half a chance because our border defenses are strong and they wouldn't dare invade us because they know we would thump them. They know what the damage would be, so they wouldn't dare. And they did because we're not dealing with a rational enemy. We are dealing with psychopaths. We heard the story just two nights ago, the father who went on TV and said that his, fa- his son's body was returned to him Headless. Hamas had decapitated him, taken the head into Gaza, tried to sell it for $10,000, and they found it in an ice cream freezer. We are dealing with psychopaths, psychopaths who hold a one-year-old baby hostage. Just yesterday, we marked Kfir Bibas's first birthday, a hostage for one quarter of his sorry life. So we are dealing with psychopaths, psychopaths who are driven by an extremist religious ideology that doesn't attach the same value to human life as you or I. We do not value or idolize martyrdom or sacrifice. These are not in our lexicon, our language of values, but they are for Hamas. And that's why Hamas leaders will go on TV and say, we are a nation of martyrs and we are happy to sacrifice people. And then the world comes and says, Israel, why are you indiscriminately hurting people? Listen to the way that Hamas speaks about the value it attaches to human life, not only our human lives, the human lives of civilians in Gaza as well. Um, now, Now, as for the question of what happened on October 7th, clearly there were horrific intelligence failures. There were warnings that were not picked up on. There are also questions that are going to be asked about the overall Israeli security uh, doctrine, the idea that Hamas could be deterred. Let's remember that in the years before October 7th, Israel was steadily increasing the number of Gazans who could come into Israel in order to work, because our conception was, if things are getting better in Gaza, they'll see they have something to lose from war. So let's keep expanding trade and getting more goods going into Gaza and more workers earning shekels in Israel, because if they see things are improving, they won't want war. And it turns out that it was all part of an elaborate deception all part of an elaborate scheme to trick us into thinking that they didn't want war, to lull us into a false sense of security so that we let down our guard. And then October 7th happened. So there's a story from that's been going around various newspapers and including the Telegraph that suggests that Netanyahu was actually trying to prop up, prop up Hamas for a political agenda. And that this example of, of having Gazans come into the Gaza envelope on the other side of the border into Israel so that they work was to get more money into Gaza. Um, there, uh, there's been repeated ignoring Hamas military provocations and um, ignoring diplomatic solutions with Abbas. This is a Telegraph story. Do you think there's anything in this? I don't think that analysis is correct, and I'll tell you why. Hamas took over the Gaza Strip in a violent coup in 2007. Fait accompli, these are our neighbors now, the Hamas terror regime. And the question is what you do with it. Now, Israel's strategy over those years, for which Mr. Netanyahu was prime minister for most of it, was that in recurring rounds of conflict, we would cut Hamas down to size. 
We would take out key leaders, reduce its capabilities, gain deterrence and buy time. And then eventually we would have another round of conflict. But there were several very serious rounds and escalations with Hamas. But there are people living there. There are people living there who need to work, who need to have food, who need to have water. And that's why Israel continued sending water and electricity into the Gaza Strip and keeping the crossings open, even though these are crossings leading to enemy-run territory. Let workers come out of Gaza because we said, look, Hamas exists. It's there. We need to find a way to live next to it. Because what is the alternative? The alternative would have been a war that many people called for, perhaps in hindsight we should have proactively launched, to bring down Hamas. And the reason that in all those years we didn't launch a war to bring down the Hamas terror regime was one, perhaps we underestimated the threat. We didn't realize what Hamas would truly do if it were capable because we couldn't have imagined the atrocities of October 7th. But also because we knew what the cost would be in blood and treasure on our side and on their side. So we tried this war, ironically, is happening because we tried for so many years to avoid it happening. We didn't want this war to happen. And therefore, Hamas was able to build up in a way that when it saw its moment of opportunity, it attacked on October 7th. I don't know what they thought was going to happen. And we are now uh, responding. But Hamas was there. We didn't have a choice about whether Hamas was our neighbor or not. And so the question was, if you're not going to launch a costly war to bring it down, maybe we should have, you need to find a way to live next to it, given that this terrorist regime governs, at the end of the day, two million people. So can we move to, you've touched on it already, but the strategy or the, rather the objectives of the war. Netanyahu has stated the war continues and it will continue until the end, we, until we complete our goals, which are the return of the abductees, the elimination of Hamas, and the assurance that Gaza will no longer pose a threat to Israel. Can we start with the hostages? You've already said there were 253 people who have taken, 136 still in Gaza, if I'm not mistaken. 136, 105 of them alive, 27 dead, and there's been a recent report that 21 Israeli civilians have been found dead. That was incorrect. That was, a, to the best of my understanding, a, a false report from Al Jazeera. About the 21 Israeli civilians? Okay. And that's in Khan Yunis. That's not correct. To the best of my understanding, that is not correct. Do, we, do you have any info more information about that? that? Just an, that it's that not That was correct. an Al Jazeera report, and what I've seen is that's not true. Okay. So, on the question of hostages, what exactly is the strategy? Is it to continue uh, mediating with the Hamas leadership in Qatar for hostage exchange? If so, how's that going? The strategy is to put unrelenting military pressure on Hamas to bring it to a point where it is willing to release these people. It's in no rush to do so. There are hostages who've been there since 2014. Hamas doesn't want to release them. It responds to military pressure. And it responds to military pressure because that was how we got the last batch of 105 hostages out. We were clobbering Hamas. We had it begging for a breather. And in exchange for a few days of a pause in the fighting, Hamas released 105 hostages. Now, that stopped on December 1st. 
when Hamas decided to stop releasing all the women and children, hold on to them, and to resume rocket fire against Israel. But that strategy worked. It vindicated itself. Now, we wish we could send in special forces and have a big commando raid and scoop up all the hostages, like in the 1970s when a plane load of Israelis were abducted to Entebbe Airport in Uganda and we sent in special forces. But that's not possible because they're not waiting in the arrivals lounge of an airport. They have been divided around the Gaza Strip in booby-trapped tunnels, in homes scattered around the Gaza Strip, where there is a possibility to swoop in and grab someone and rescue them. We'll try. We rescued one soldier that way, uh, a soldier hostage. There was a, another case of a failed rescue mission where the person was killed. But the strategy is to put pressure on Hamas so that it says, listen, 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 I need a breather. Because that is what happened last time. It worked with the last hostage release. Do you think it's crash for me to say then that the strategy is to bomb the shit out of Gaza until they, they are forced to deliver the, the hostages back? No, it's to uh, bomb the shit out of Hamas. We take very seriously our obligations under international law of proportionality and distinction, doing everything we can to get civilians out of harm's way so that we can target Hamas. And you're seeing that now with 9,000 Hamas terrorists killed. This isn't airstrikes. This is intense door-to-door urban fighting of the sort that maybe the British would have seen in Afghanistan would be familiar from ISIS as well. The idea is to put strong military pressure uh, on them, cut the fighters off from their leaders until they say, we need a pause, we need a breather. Um, And we really have no time to waste. There is no time to waste because we know that the hostages are being serially abused physically, psychologically, sexually as well. Sexually as well. Those are the reports coming from doctors who have examined the returning hostages, testimonies of the survivors of Hamas captivity as well. You can only imagine why, despite an agreement to release all of the women, Hamas has chosen not to do so. We try not to let our minds go there, but we have to be realistic, knowing what atrocities Hamas perpetrated, sexual atrocities Hamas perpetrated on October 7th, what might be going on in its terror dungeons now. And that's why we're especially outraged when we hear people around the world say, okay, you've had your fun, enough is enough, stop the fighting. Because we say, if your children were abducted by violent rapists, you would go to the ends of the earth to bring them back and you wouldn't sit back and say, okay, let's abandon them there, no matter how many local councils in California uh, pass resolutions condemning you. So for the second part of the objectives, eliminating Hamas... Netanyahu wrote in the Wall Street Journal that he wants to de-radicalize the Palestinians. The more civilian casualties, the more protracted the war, the more likely it will spawn a kind of Hydra effect. How does he intend to de-radicalize, given that it's, it's likely that Palestinians will... It's almost like their ideology is reinforced with every Israeli victory. And we're seeing Hamas popularity grow in the West Bank, although what I've seen not in Hamas. Gaza, I'm not sure how one would record properly what the, the opinion is in Gaza. It seems to me that Hamas is two things. It's an ideology and it's an organization. Okay, eliminating the organization, one can sort of imagine they surrender, they give up their arms, and that's sort of one can sort of imagine that. But the idea... Which ideolo- we would love to see. 
by the way, and the option of surrender is still on the table. And we think that anyone who seriously cares about civilians in Gaza and wants a ceasefire now should say, like the European Union said, okay, after Hamas is dismantled, Hamas should surrender. So the ideology of Hamas, how does one eliminate that? That is an excellent question. We know that with this war, we can't destroy an idea. We can remove it from power, just as when the UK and 85 nations decided to gang up against ISIS nearly a decade ago. They didn't think they were going to eliminate Islamic extremism. They said we can deny it control of territory from which to direct attacks around the world. Now, I've, I've always been baffled by the argument that says if you continue uh, your offensive in Gaza you're going to radicalize a new generation. Okay, what, well, then they yeah, might why do is something that bad? It's not baffling to me, it's, it makes sense to me. Because when the atrocities happened, the polls coming out of Palestinian society show that 75% of them supported Hamas's offensive. About another 10, 15% were um, apathetic and only a minority opposed it. They're going to do something bad now? They already have a serious extremism problem. Now, in 1944, no one suggested that if Britain continues bombing in Nazi Germany, it will breed a new generation of Nazis. They said this is an evil regime that must go for the good of its victims, for the good of its own people. And the day after, there needs to be de-radicalization. And Germany and Japan are now powerful and prosperous Western democracies and allies. If that can happen to Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, I still have hope for Hamas Gaza. History shows it can be done. Now, how will it be done? Destroying Hamas will do by ourselves. Demilitarizing Gaza on us. De-radicalization is going to require the involvement of the international community because we do not want to reoccupy Gaza. We don't intend to run the schools there and govern them. We think they should govern themselves. But inside Gaza at the moment are many schools run by the UN, run not just by the UN, but by UNRWA. UNRWA is the Palestinians' own bespoke refugee agency. There are two refugee agencies in the world, the High Commissioner for Refugees and UNRWA. And they have different definitions for what it means to be a refugee. If, God forbid, you were to become a refugee from the UK, the moment you get citizenship or residency somewhere else, you're no longer a refugee. For the Palestinians, the status of refugee is inherited down the generations. That means 70% of people inside Gaza are classified as refugees, even though they were born there. Okay. Now, the message that the world sends to Palestinians in Gaza when it tells them you are refugees is Gaza isn't your home. You don't belong here. Don't bother investing in a peaceful, prosperous future because one day you have a right to resettle in Israeli territory and you have a right to wage a violent struggle as well. So you've had a whole generation raised up, generations, raised on a diet of jihad and martyrdom. And the youngest terrorists who participated in the October 7th massacre were born after Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip in 2005, and they were brought up under Hamas on this diet of jihad and martyrdom. So we think that the world needs to tell, some Palest needs to tell the Palestinians some tough truths. 1948 is over. The state of Israel is here to stay and has a right to exist within secure, safe, and sovereign borders. And if you want a future of peace and prosperity, that can happen. But it has to happen by changing your ideology and realizing you need to live next to Israel instead of pursuing violent struggle against it.
And everyone on the streets of London or Paris or New York who is chanting from the river to the sea and feeding their ideology of marching through all the territory between the river and the sea, sovereign Israeli territory in the middle, where we are sitting now, is fueling their beliefs that one day this conflict is going to end with Israel wiped off the map and destroyed. Where in fact what they should be telling them for their own well-being is Israel isn't going anywhere and you can have as prosperous a society as Germany and Japan. You just have to decide that terrorism is a dead end. There's no light at the end of that tunnel. Drop that commitment to from the river to the sea, that commitment to violent struggle, that idolization of jihad and martyrdom, and the sky's the limit. Let's talk about from the river to the sea. Yesterday, at the time of speaking, on I-24 News, Netanyahu said, from the river to the sea, in the future, the state of Israel has to control the entire area from the river to the sea. I know you say you're against that term. In fact, you've tweeted before, from the river to the sea is a genocidal call for the ethnic cleansing of Jews from the land of Israel. What's the difference between the prime minister saying it and a pro-Palestinian saying it? First of all, the prime minister did not use those exact words. But What did he the say? Pri- the prime minister said that Israel will need to retain security control in all the area west of the Jordan River. Now let's ask why. Israelis are unfortunately traumatized by past experiences of territorial withdrawals that have exploded in their faces. The Gaza Strip is the best example. In 2005, we pulled out the army, pulled out 8,000 settlers, and in exchange received not only nearly 20 years of rocket fire, but also the death squads of October 7th. And Israelis ask themselves, when the world comes and says, in order to make peace, you need to relinquish more territory, you need to give the Palestinians more land, how do we know that the same thing that happened in Gaza isn't going to happen in the West Bank? Because the West Bank isn't a little piece of territory tucked away in the corner of the country. It's a big mountain range that overlooks Tel Aviv and surrounds Jerusalem. If you stand in the mountains of the West Bank, you have a clear view of the boats on the Mediterranean Sea. And we fear that any territorial withdrawal would create a security vacuum that is going to be filled not by the forces of nice, fluffy, liberal democracy, but by violent jihadists funded by Iran sworn to a vision of destroying our country. And that is why it is essentially a point of consensus in Israel that we should give the Palestinians, they should have all the rights to govern themselves. We do not want to govern their lives or tell them what to do. They should govern themselves. But Israel is going to have to retain overriding security control. Because if we don't, if we don't, we will get Gaza on steroids. People want to know that what happened in Kfar Aza won't happen in Kfar Saba. And the way that Hamas rampaged through Sderot on October 7th won't happen in Modi'in and other towns in Israel. Because for us, it's not a thought experiment or academic seminar. It's real life, and it's a question of real life and death. And if we had rockets coming from the West Bank, we wouldn't have 90 seconds to run for shelter like Gaza. We would have 20 seconds. And the thing that we care about the most is surviving, staying safe, and and all questions, therefore, about how we achieve 
peaceful coexistence with our neighbors are therefore derivative from the question of how do we survive? I'm not really sure I understand how this works practically. In the West Bank, they don't have elections because they want to keep Abbas in. In uh, the in Gaza, Abbas would like to keep Abbas. In. Abbas would like to keep yes. in Gaza. Hamas don't want elections for obvious reasons. You want them to govern themselves. Do you really want them to govern themselves like this under this situation? And if you're controlling, or as as I've understood Netanyahu to say, he wants control. Does does that mean that actually a two state solution is it's not really a desire for Israel? The current arrangement under which the Palestinians have autonomy in the major towns and cities inside the West Bank was a product of the Oslo Accords in the early 90s. They were supposed to be temporary accords that would lead to a permanent peace accord. As the Oslo Accords were unfolding, Hamas was launching suicide bombs here in, here in Tel Aviv to try to scupper that, to serve as a spoiler to peace. And after the summit in 2000, where Prime Minister Ehud Barak at the time proposed a very generous offer to the Palestinians of statehood, and the Palestinian leader at the time, Yasser Arafat, rejected that, what followed was the Second Intifada, a wave of suicide bombings in cafes, bars, malls around the country that killed as many people as October 7th. So Israelis look at their history and say, look, there have been several occasions in which we have offered statehood to the Palestinians. Those offers were rejected. And now we understand what the consequences would be of relinquishing control of territory. Because we simply cannot afford to have territory that gets taken over by a foreign, uh, by a hostile army or by terror organizations. So the question of two-state solution, exactly how we achieve peace with the Palestinians, is something we're going to have to think out very seriously after the war, after Hamas is destroyed. But we think that in order for there to be peace of any sort, whether you call it two states or three states, doesn't matter, there needs to be serious change among the Palestinians to accepting the legitimacy of the state of Israel and a genuine desire to live next to us. Because at the moment, the Palestinian national movement's main priority is not the establishment of their own state, but the destruction of the state of Israel. And as long as that river-to-the-sea ideology remains prevalent within Palestinian society, it's impossible to contemplate any sort of territorial withdrawal that would give them control of strategic territory for the basic interest of staying alive and maintaining our security. Um, there were periods in Israeli history, you know, around the time of the Gaza withdrawal, Israeli society was in a place where it said, we would be willing to allow the creation of a Palestinian state separate from the Palestinians if we thought it would bring us peace and security. And the lesson that many people have learned here over the last 20 years is, but in practice it won't. In practice it won't bring us peace and security. Um, and so we're driven by that question of, well, how do we do that? How do we achieve peace and security? And and it takes two to tango. It takes two to tango. And, and I... I totally understand that from the Israeli point of view, but it sounds like it's the same thing in reverse. If you look at Netanyahu's history of pro-settlement, and I again, it was in Hebrew, so I don't know exactly what he said, but the translation I've seen was from the river to the sea. It seems like 
that his idea, his perspective is kind of an inverse of that. And so how, how, how can there be reconciliation with two different nations in this land who similarly don't trust each other in how to govern the land and how to share it? Throughout the history of this land, there have been several attempts to divide the land between Israelis and Palestinians on all of which the Israeli side said, we agree, and the Palestinian side rejected it. Most famously in 1947, when the UN General Assembly voted on partition of what was then territory controlled by Britain, uh, the Jewish population said, we'll take it, and the Arabs rejected it and launched a war in order to destroy this country. That failed, and it backfired on them. Now, in every case in history in which an Arab society, an Arab country, has accepted the state of Israel, peace has followed. Peace followed the moment that Egypt said, we're willing to live next to Israel, we no longer want to destroy it. Peace followed when Jordan said the same thing, when Morocco, the UAE, Bahrain, and we're potentially on the brink of a breakthrough with uh, the Saudis. But the Palestinian national movement has always remained deeply committed with very deep, violent, religious undertones as well to the idea that between the river and the sea, there can only be a Palestinian state and the Jews have to be cleansed from this land. And while that is what we are dealing with, that total opposition to Israel's existence at all, it's very difficult to imagine any sort of sustainable compromise because we want to have a prosperous and peaceful country and then say, okay, well, how are we going to achieve that with our neighbors? Whereas the Palestinian national movement starts from the perspective at the moment of saying, we don't want Israel to be there at all. And so it's a question of very different starting points about what we're trying to achieve and where we're trying to go. You mentioned the Saudis, and I think you're referring to the Abraham Accords. The Saudi um, uh, foreign minister said that he's ready to recognize Israel if Israel resolve the conflict with the Palestinians and give them a state. I'm very interested in, in the Abraham Accords. It, se it seemed like unbelievable progress towards peace in the region. Since Biden's come in, we're seeing quite the opposite. How, how much is the current White House administration supporting you? And, for example, they've also just said it's time to scale back the Gaza war. How important is the support of the Americans to Israel? American support is absolutely critical. The United States is our closest ally, and its support is important, not only because it is the world's leading superpower, but also because we have very deep shared values and specifically interests in the region as well. The United States knows that Israel is a firm Western ally and democracy in a region of tyrannies. Um, American presidents are often much more popular in Israel than they are in the United States. Uh, Trump was very popular. And, and uh, all U.S. presidents, because they've stood by that Israel-U.S. alliance, and they understand that it's an alliance. It's not that Israel is receiving charity from the United States. Israel receives very generous military support, and in exchange we are the eyes and ears of the middle of the United States and other Western allies here on the ground. Uh, and the United States, under the Biden administration, has fully supported the Abraham Accords. I'll tell you just how much. So. Uh, have they? Yes. 
After the US, after the Biden administration came in, it essentially repudiated everything to do with the Trump administration and its agenda and said, we're turning a new leaf and we're breaking with it on almost every policy. Except the Abraham Accords. That was the one Trump era policy branded with something totally identified with the breakthrough that came under the Trump administration that the Biden administration said, we're taking this and we're going to run with it. And the feeling here is the trend in the Middle East is still towards normalization and deeper integration with our neighbors. And it's not that October 7th is somehow a reversal because October 7th was in some ways an attempt to scupper that trend. We are moving closer to Saudi Arabia and what you call the moderate Sunni states. Hamas is a proxy of Iran, the Islamic Republic regime, just as the Houthi pirates are also proxies of Iran. And they have an interest in trying to scupper that normalization and integration. Well, it, but until this war, it seemed to me like a, a reorientation back towards the old Obama policy of trying to broker peace with Iran. And an example of that would be the $6 billion that was unfrozen in South Korea, given back. It was only, I think, weeks before the, um, the, this Hamas, Hamas war. the massacre, people were speaking about a potential deal with Saudi Arabia being in the works potentially by the end of the year or a matter of months. That was the feeling that was in the air. Now, we have disagreements with the U.S. administration about how the Iranian nuclear issue should be addressed. Obviously, for us, we cannot accept the idea that a regime that is openly vowing the destruction of our country might have the weapons with which to do that. Because Jewish history has taught us that when very dangerous people say they want to kill the Jews, you should probably take them seriously, especially if they have the weapons to do that. Uh, but the United States remains committed to that vision of normalization and integration in the Middle East because it understands that it serves its values. America doesn't want to be the world's policeman. And it understands that the biggest contribution to American security is to have the countries on the ground able to talk to each other and cooperate with each other and take care of their interests and therefore American interests without needing direct American intervention. And that's why when Israel and the UAE made peace in 2020, you saw this sudden explosion of trade and mutual investment because these were two worlds that simply had not been cooperating. It was so overdue for them to start talking to each other and doing business together. And they're now trying to catch up and say, wow, look, here are all the things we were missing out on over the years. Uh, and that was thanks to extensive American mediation. Seems like there is some hope in the diplomacy front, but you're an Englishman like me. You'll have seen what's going on in the streets of London. You're, in fact, you're a Londoner like me, I think. Yes. I say you're an English, you're Israeli, forgive me. But no, you're, I'm an Englishman as well. Okay. We all have hyphenated <laughs> ideas. <laughs> um, in Britain, it seems like, and on the streets, it's a different story. I'm sure you've been shocked by what you've seen. You've tweeted as much. It seems like also, almost certainly, Labour Party are going to be coming into power later this year. Keir Starmer, who, of course, was supported Jeremy Corbyn. Under Jeremy Corbyn, I think seven or eight Labour MPs left the party because of anti-Semitism. Several MPs, I think Kim Johnson is a Liverpool MP, Labour MP, has just called the Israeli government fascist. Does it matter to Israel? And there, sorry, and there's a Labour MP, Andy McDonald, suspended for, for using the term from the river to the sea. Do, does it matter to Israel who's in power in Britain? 
if Jeremy Corbyn had become Prime Minister, clearly that would have been a very serious problem. Uh, Sir Keir has stood very clearly by our side. He has done a very impressive job of purging anti-Semites from the party and still remains firm in his support of Israel, despite political pressure. Uh, and I've seen he faced a number of resignations as well from people who are upset with his policy. Now, the situation on the streets of Britain is disturbing. The tearing down of hostage posters, for example. This war began, people started putting up posters of the hostages who were abducted, and people tore them down. Now, it takes a certain amount of dehumanization to tear down the poster of a two-year-old kidnapped child. And I know just now from my visit to the UK, many people in the Jewish community are rattled by the knowledge that many of their neighbours are in fact happy to tear down posters of kidnapped children. Now, we were saying there is a problem when people express support for Hamas or jihad on the streets of London, or intifada. You heard people on the London Underground chanting, intifada, intifada. The intifada was a wave of suicide bombings on public transport in Israel. London has already had a taste of intifada. That was the 7-7 bombings. Britain has had a taste of jihad. That was the Manchester Arena bombings. So there is a threat to Britain as well. And that threat came out just now with the escalation with the Houthis, where you hear people on the streets of London chanting, Yemen, Yemen, make us proud, turn another ship around. They are calling for attacks on British forces and on British targets. There is a serious domestic extremism problem, and it's a domestic extremism problem that is generating diplomatic pressure that might make it difficult for the British government to follow up on its own national security and foreign policy interests, which they see as Israel's victory in this war. The UK still wants Israel to win this war, just as the European Union wants, and the United States as well. But when you have a movement of people who have dehumanized Israelis to the point that they will tear down posters of abducted children, call for intifada, and express support for Iranian proxies attacking uh, British targets... That is a serious problem, and it's a problem that uh, our friends in British society, our allies, need to understand before it causes them more serious damage. Wearing your English tie as much as you can be, given your current role, and on a personal level, as a Londoner like me, because I've been very shocked by what I've seen in my home city, are you pessimistic about the future of London and of Britain in terms of the culture? No, I'm optimistic. I know that British society is at its core fundamentally decent, that values of fair play and politeness and decency are the core of the British ethos. And so in this war, we are also reminding the British public that all we're asking for is the right to live free, safe, secure lives away from terrorist barbarians who ride roughshod over the values that we both care about. Um, we think perhaps there may be a misunderstanding of the extent of the threat, of the domestic extremism, of the ideological movement that has been allowed to fester at universities and elite institutions that has led to uh, these sorts of calls on the streets of Britain. 
But I very much believe, having grown up in London, that the British commitment to common sense and fair play will ultimately prevail. I think at the end of the day, the British public doesn't have much tolerance for extremists who try to to uh, shake things up and uh, and foment and incite violence. Well, on that positive note, Elon Levy, thank you so much for speaking with me. Is there anything that you'd like to add that we didn't cover? Israeli society is very united now in a way that I've never seen before. That this is crunch time and we have to fight to bring back the hostages and destroy the terrorist monsters who are telling us that they want to do this again and again. And they will do it unless we stop them. Now, I know that the images on TV screens are very difficult to see, and it's very easy to simply turn around, point a finger at Israel, and say, you should just stop and make this go away. First of all, you're right to be outraged and upset about what is happening in Gaza, but there is an address for that. The address is Hamas, which launched this totally unnecessary war, and which is waging this war by hiding under civilians. Civilians Israel is trying to get to evacuate to safe zone so they're not in a war zone, but Hamas is hiding behind them. The New York Times reported this week that the Hamas tunnels under Gaza might be up to 70 times longer than the entire London underground, which is obscene. Of the tunnel shafts that we have found, most of them have been in schools, homes, hospitals, mosques. There is a reason for what you are seeing, and that is that we are fighting fundamentalist, zealous terrorists who have as little regard for humanitarian law as they do for basic norms of humanity. And if you want this war to end, like we do, but want this war to end with the hostages home and with Hamas no longer able to threaten us and oppress the people of Gaza, you need to demand Hamas's immediate and unconditional surrender. Because everyone wants this to be over. No one but the most violent extremists wants war. The question is on what terms? Are you calling for a ceasefire now that would leave the hostages there and Hamas free and emboldened to reoffend, free and emboldened to rape people again because they think people in London will call for Israel to stop defending itself? Or do you say, no, this war needs to end with Hamas removed from power? And that's why anyone who cares about what is going on now should be demanding a Hamas surrender and in the absence of that, a total Israeli victory so that this war can end and genuinely create the new opportunities to turn a new leaf and put the Hamas era behind us. Elon Levy, pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Winston. Thank you for watching the Winston Marshall Show. If you enjoyed that episode, well, I encourage you to like, share and subscribe. You can also find us on all podcast outlets if you want just the audio and, of course, on winstonmarshall.co. UK. Thanks for listening.